Aren't you glad you're not dealing with a hurricane today? I mean, in Wyoming, we don't have to worry about hurricanes. Maybe a wildfire or flooding from melting snow or the impending doom from a volcano in Yellowstone. <laughs> but we certainly don't have to deal with a hurricane. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, we still have to think about North Korea and that nut job. But, you know, the good news is that we just don't have that many sleepless nights. Uh, and we're not that consumed about that kind of stuff. It's interesting what's happened, though, when you think about it, because we've had the full lunar eclipse. Now we've got western United States completely on fire and British Columbia. Um, while in Canada, I learned that British Columbia is more on fire right now than it has ever been since they've recorded fires. It is a disaster. So we've got that. We've got the fires that are out of control. We've got hurricanes bringing destruction to Texas and Florida and other places. The continual threat of nuclear missile from North Korea. The ongoing fight against terrorists, not to mention all the own, our own unrest in our country today. I can't remember a time, and I grew, grew up in the 60s, and I can't remember a time when a con- our country has been more divided than it is right now. And that's really discouraging. We've got politicians that just don't seem to, to really care what's going on, and all they're out to do is to stir up trouble for the other side. They've been elected to do a job, but they forgot what that is, and they're doing something else. And here's what happens when we get into life like this, when we have all these um, things that are out of our control, because all those things, the hurricane, the fires, the political unrest around the world, the, the trouble in our own backyard, as we're um, speaking, with our, our own countrymen not loving each other, hating each other, all that stuff is completely out of our control, and there is nothing that we can do about it. And when that happens, people start looking for something or someone. They're looking for someone that's going to go, can someone tell me how to make sense of all of this stuff that's going on? Can someone help me understand it all? Where's God in all this, and where's the hope that I need so badly, because right now, it feels pretty hopeless. Right now, I feel like uh, the peace of God is for somebody else, somewhere else, because it's not happening right now in, in my life. And there are people all over the world, all over the United States, that are looking for someone to give them a promise that everything's going to be okay. And so what do they do? They start staying up late watching late-night televangelists or guys that are on TV that are selling hope. All you have to do is buy this little packet of water. It's a packet of miracle water. You buy this, you drink it, it's going to change your life forever. I don't know if you've seen That's true. That's on television. I don't know if you've seen it, but it just about makes me throw up in my mouth. 
because uh, I tried the water. It's really bad. Um, so they're looking for some kind of a spiritual leader. They're looking for a guru, a mystic, a self-proclaimed channel to God or the creator or whatever power that they call it because they're looking for direction or intervention. Intervention. They seek spiritual help. And, and there are people that have an ability to, track, to attract those people who are living in absolute fear of everything. And so they're making the phone calls. They're buying the stuff. They're buying the book. They're doing all this stuff. And a year later, they're still in the same boat with one oar in the water rowing their boat in circles. And they're going nowhere fast, and they feel completely hopeless. They can feel completely worn out because the circumstances that they have in their life, they believe that the only way their life is going to change is by some supernatural intervention And they need some kind of assurance that it's going to be okay, regardless of what's going on around them. And we might think we're living in a very precarious time. The threat of war from a, a, a guy that's out of his mind. The impending natural disasters. A country highly divided, politically speaking. And it seems like as we as a nation are morally bankrupt, and what used to be good and right is now evil and wrong. And it can be very unnerving and very unsettling. And it makes us think, what is next? And even people who are Christ followers are going like, Lord Jesus, come along and help me. And yet, sometimes God's just silent. And what do we do? What are we going to do? We think maybe we're living in the last times that, that this is it and that nobody in the history of the world has had to deal with the stuff we've had to deal with. The only difference between us and the church 2,000 years ago is you can get everything. Matter of fact, you could probably pull your phone up right now and find out where the hurricane is. Whereas years and years ago, back when I was a wee tyke, you had to wait for the news to come out. Sit by your radio and listen. Radio. You little kids don't know what that is. It's this thing. It's got an intent. But now it's instant. It's on your phone. You can get it whenever you want to right now. You can get everything from all around the world. And so we think now we're living in a most precarious time. But I'm going to tell you something. When we face the uncertainties and the insecurities of this world, particularly in the, in the areas which we cannot control, we need to follow the advice that God gave to us. That's, that's where we get it. That's where we stand on firm ground, on a solid rock, because it says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, And he will make your paths straight. He's going to do that for you. But you see, what happens is that that we have all kinds of stuff coming at us all the time. And and we think we have an understanding of different situations. We might have an understanding of a relational situation or a workplace um, situation. We might think we have an idea of the church situation or what's going on in our community. But the problem is, is that we lack 
full understanding in all of it. So we have limited understanding. And yet what we're going to do is we are going to make a judgment on limited understanding. And when you make a judgment on limited understanding, your judgment is never going to be right. It might be partial right. It'll be, what is, how does it go? It's partially right, but mostly wrong. And so what we need is we need to have full understanding of what's going on around us. And when we try to get that understanding in our own strength and our own power, we really know how to mess things up. And so what the Bible tells us is don't trust on your own understanding. Trust on God's understanding because he has the full picture on everything that's going on at all times. And so what you need to know, he already knows. And what he knows, he'll deliver to you when you ask for it. Because it tells us in James that if you lack wisdom, ask God and he'll give it to you generously. He's not going to hold back on it. He's not going to go, no, you don't get that much. I'm going to give you a little smidge. I'm going to give you just enough to make you dangerous. That is not our God. He wants us to succeed at the things in life that are important to him, that should be important to us. So he'll give what we need. It goes on in, um, when we think about this, we need this all-encompassing appraisal of what's going on around us. And God's the only one that has that. In, in Romans, Paul says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. The behavior and the customs of this world. As Paul says, don't, don't step into that. Don't get caught up into that. Because that's that, what the world does is they look to everything and everyone except God when things are coming down the the pipe that they don't understand, that they can't get a handle on. So they go and they seek the experts. Do you know what an expert is? Let's break down the word. X is a has-been, and a spurt is a drip under pressure. So you're an X drip under pressure. How many experts do we have here today? There we go. One honest person. Thank you. Well, what happens is, is that we really, people are looking to other places other than God for security and peace. We become reactive rather than proactive. And we deal with life issues in the flesh rather than in the spirit. But Paul says, as a Christ follower, as one who is set apart for the glory of God, let God recondition your thinking because when you allow God to do what he does best, you become someone who is not displaced or shaken or easily angered or reactive. We learn from God and by God how to be peacemakers, how to be gentle and loving in both word and deed. And we don't let any of the curveballs that life throws at us, set us off and knock us off of our foundation because we are stuck on Christ and his promises for us. Here's the bottom line. Just about every generation of Christ followers from the onset of the church has had to deal with all kinds of issues 
from persecution to natural disasters, from false teachers infiltrating the church to factions and divisions in the church. And yet over the past 2,000 years, we know one thing for sure, and it's that Jesus promised that the church would not only survive, it would thrive in spite of the world dictators, in spite of persecution, in spite of liberal worldviews, in spite of conservative worldviews, in spite of politicians, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, famines, volcanoes, and in spite of church people. God says we will survive, and we're going to do it better than anybody else because this is the only institution that has the backing of Almighty God. That's what exactly what Jesus said to Peter when he made the promise. He said, on this rock, in Matthew, on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus said, I will build my church. I'm not building this church. Pastor John's not building the church. The leadership of the church is not building the church. Jesus builds the church. And what he's doing is he's calling out and he's saying, Hey, you all are a part of the building process. Come and join in the process, would you? And we're either going to go, Yep, put me in. What do you want me to do? Or we're going to go like, Uh, somebody else can do it. I've done my share. So what is it that God's calling us to do? You know, Jesus is going to build his church. And this is the great thing is that over the last 2,000 years, the church has been in all of her splendor, in all of her glory, the most exuberant and beautiful thing you have ever seen in your life. And then there are other times when the church has been ugly. And I mean the ugly that goes right to the bone ugly. And it's sad. Because we've got the promise and yet we fail to step into what Jesus has for us. So what do we do? How exactly or what exactly is the role that we have in building the church with Jesus How do we know what we're to do? The first thing I would say is that we are called to connect to Jesus. We are to connect to Jesus. That's individually, you are called to connect to Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. We are to help other people connect with Jesus. We connect to Jesus. We help other people connect to Jesus. And by us helping other people connect to Jesus... We're connecting with the other people. Wow. I should write that down somewhere. That's like going to change the world. The, the, the funny thing is, is that it really sounds very simple. Yet when you start to try and do it, all kinds of crazy nut job issues come to the surface And you have to scrape off the dross, as Jesus would say, to get to the pure silver. So, the good news for us is that Jesus has never called us to passively just sit by and let everything happen around us. He's called us to step up and get going. And that means 
And, and that's why we're starting a new series, and it's in, the, in um, 1 John. And John wrote these three letters to the churches so that they would know exactly how God wants us to walk together on this journey of connecting people to Jesus. In order to connect others with Jesus, you must first be connected to him in a deep and significant way, which requires walking in love, walking in obedience, and walking in hope. So as we start this new series on John's epistle or letters to the church, the series titled is called Walk This Way. And that's what what John's calling us all to do. That's the overriding theme that John is bringing to the churches. You must walk in the light. You must walk in holiness. You must walk in righteousness. You must walk in the spirit. You can't do it by sitting. We're never called to sit in the light, to sit in the spirit. We only sit in our own pews. That's why we got chairs. Because that, that's bad. That's just bad. So what we're going to do with First John today is we're going to do what I would call a 30,000 foot look at it. From 30,000 feet. Anybody here ever flying an airplane? Look out, look out the window. 30,000 feet. Everything's just... You get to see a lot but not very much detail. So that's kind of what we're going to do today. And so um, let's get started. Now, as we go through this book of John's, or this letter, I should say, there's going to be a consistent repetition of three sub-themes regarding faithfulness to the basics of being a Christ follower. Joy, holiness, and security. And by faithfulness to the basics, we will experience these three results continually in our lives. These three factors also reveal the key cycle of true spirituality in 1 John. A proper belief in Jesus produces obedience to his commands. Obedience issues in love for God and fellow believers. When these three, sound faith, obedience, and love, operate in concert together, they will result in joy, holiness, and assurance. They constitute the evidence, the litmus test of a true Christ follower. That's why in in 1 John 1.4, he writes, John's by saying, we're writing these things that our joy may be complete. Complete joy. Now, here's, here's some of the things he has to deal with. False Spiritual teachers were a big problem in the year of the church. Not much has changed. Right? And because there wasn't a, a complete New Testament in the early church, the believers couldn't refer to many of the teachings that we can. And many of the churches early fell pride to pretenders who taught their own ideas and advanced themselves as leaders. John wrote this letter to set the record straight on some important issues, particularly concerning the identity of Jesus Christ. That's why he says in 4.1, Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. 
for there are many false prophets in the world. How do you know if, if you've got, if the teaching isn't true? It sounds true-ish. How do you know if it's false? It might be a smidge false. There, there are a bunch of things. We'll get into it later. But one of the things I just want to remind you of that we, that I, we, collective we, are always going to pound, present in this church. And it's Jesus. We, we try not to give you too many hurdles to deal with every week. Because we know you're going to be dealing with one major hurdle every week, and his name is Jesus. Because he is going to call you to places where you have never been before. He's going to call you to some very uncomfortable action steps that you have never taken before. And so that's the hurdle we want to have in front of you. And that's what we want to present every time is Jesus. So a lot of false teachers, they present themselves. I have family members who, when they talk about their church, they talk about their pastor. Pastor says this, pastor says that, pastor says this, pastor says that, pastor did this, pastor did that. And I always walk away and I'm going like, did Jesus ever do anything? Did Jesus have anything to say? And I certainly hope that you don't say Pastor Ken because if you do, you should wash your mouth out with soap. That is naughty. It should be Jesus. And so that's what we're really going to be doing because we really want to focus on Christ. We, that's what he, John was dealing with was false prophets because John's letter is about basic faith in Christ. It will help us reflect honestly on our faith. It will help us answer the question, Are we true believers? John says that we can tell by looking at our actions. If we love one another, that is the evidence of God's presence in our life. If we are bickering and fighting all the time, or we are selfish and do not look out for other people, we're portraying the fact, we're portraying that we, in fact, do not know God. We only know about God. 3.7, John says, Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. He goes on in 3.10 to say, So, now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. I hope that's a little bit unsettling. I hope that strikes a little bit of a nerve. Because there may be people who make the claim of being Christ followers, and they're like sandpaper. 
you're still called to love them. Now, that, that's not your um, brotherly love. That's, that's, store, that's the agape love that allows us to do that. It's supernaturally implanted by God, helping us to love those people who are hard to love. But right here, it, it's really, John really makes it evident. He says, you know what? He says, if you don't love the people that you do church with, you really don't belong to God. So what does that mean? It, does it mean that we have to be perfect? No, that's not what he's saying. John also, because John also recognizes that believing involves admitting our sins and seeking God's forgiveness, depending on God for cleansing from guilt along with admitting our wrongs against others and making amends. This is another important um, part aspect of getting to know God. That's what he says in one nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of the most often quoted passages regarding sin is found in 2.16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. This passage, John, describes three aspects of sin that recall the first and most earth-shattering temptations in all Scripture. And it's the first sin, the disobedience of Eve, which was the result of her Yielding to the same three temptations we find here. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. John says, doesn't belong. Doesn't belong. As we study this letter, it's a letter of love and joy. It explains being connected in community with others and with Jesus. It differentiates between happiness, which is temporary and fleeting, and true joy, which John tells us is what we're supposed to achieve. And he'll tell us how to do it. If we take the words written by John and we apply them to our daily lives, true love, commitment, connecting, and joy will have all the things we long for from our Father in Heaven. The Apostle John knew Christ well. He's, do you remember that? If you go back and you read his gospel, he refers to himself as the, the one whom Jesus loved. He had this, this really close and intimate relationship with Jesus. And we have the witness of this man, along with other men, who, drew, who had a direct and personal contact with Jesus. The gospel writers present their solidly based testimony on a historical reality. So now, how does that all apply to our lives? It explains to us that Jesus came here as the Son of God to create union with us, to connect with us based on His grace, His mercy, His love, and His acceptance. So many times people think Jesus is off in some faraway place and that He doesn't really, isn't concerned with our daily struggles, issues, and concerns. But what John is telling us is that Jesus is right here with us, both simply in the mundane parts of our lives and in the complex, soul-wrenching parts of our life. He made the promise that he would never leave us or forsake us. He told us he's not going anywhere. 
And the only time that we feel that God has left us is because we have turned our back on him and have gone our own way. And, and Jesus is right where we left him. You, you didn't lose him. You just put him right there and went over there. God became flesh and lived among men. That means Christ came here to live with us, and he still lives with us today. He walked the earth alongside John, and now he walks through every day, each and every day with us. That's the thought that I really want you to get implanted into your mind, particularly as we did the Beast Feast and Blessing last night. Because if you think about it, that Jesus goes with us wherever we go, when you go hunting, you've got a hunting companion. When you're driving into town, you've got someone sitting in the passenger seat with you. When you're flying across the country, he's right there with you. There isn't a single place that you go that Jesus doesn't go with you. And as we start to step into that reality, we start to think about that, make that a continual thought process in our minds, what we're going to come to realize is that Jesus walks with me every day. He's walking with me so that when I walk this journey of faith, he's there to support me. He's there to encourage me. He's there to give me strength because he's always there. Christ will add holiness to our lives, making us more like him when we recognize that he walks with us wherever we go. He hears every word we see, say. He sees every deed that we do. We all go through ups and downs in our everyday life that will test our faith. And whatever struggle, whether outside of us or on the inside, we often feel ourselves blown about by the winds of emotion or circumstances, yet God calls us, to lives of increasing consistency with the evidence of our inner transformation becoming more and more apparent as the months and the years pass by. How would you characterize your relationship with God? Consistent and fruitful? Or sporadic and parched? John knew that we would never find in of ourselves the faithfulness God requires. Instead, we have placed our complete trust in the work and the grace of God, believing that he will certainly conform us to the image of his son, Jesus. The sense of being grounded in God only comes when we set aside our sin in pursuit of the one true God. Or, in the words of John, out of 4.12, if we love one another... God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, many believers are burdened down by the unnecessary guilt, but there's a difference between human guilt, the enemy's condemnation, and the conviction by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God convicts us in specific ways about specific sins and wants to bring us freedom. From it. The enemy tells us we're doomed. We're not good enough to be a Christ follower. God can't possibly save us, and you don't deserve his forgiveness. 
That's condemnation. And it's straight from the devil. And conviction is from the Holy Spirit. John wants every one of us to know that when we sin, it's when, not if, we can come to God immediately and confess it. John, in 5.18, he says this, We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. Something really wonderful happens after something really bad happens. And we find that back in nine again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. If you have your Bible, you should underline, circle that word. Cleanse us from all wickedness, evil. That's what he does. But here's the thing. We've got to be honest with God because if we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word's not in us. So here we are. John wrote this letter to the church. And here's the thing about the church. The church has been fractured, badly wounded at this time when he wrote it, but managed to spread due to the destruction of Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? Do you know that there are a lot of Christ followers, both um, from, that were Jews and Gentiles, living in Jerusalem? They had fellowship one with another. They had churches in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, God allows Jerusalem to be utterly and completely destroyed. Then the persecution falls on the Christ followers. Thousands and thousands and thousands of men and women who devoted themselves to Jesus spilt their blood on the ground. And out of the ground, out of that blood, the church grew. The church has always grown out of persecution. And that's what we're talking about, is that sometimes things aren't always going to go the way we want them to. Sometimes we get pressed in and pressed hard. And that's why John writes this, these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That is your hope. That is what you hang on to. That is your assurance. Nobody can take that from you. No one. The devil can't take that from you. Your cranky neighbor can't take that from you. A stupid hurricane can't take that from you. That goofball over in North Korea, he can't take that from you. Nobody can take it from you. Jesus has made it true, and he will secure it in your life. That is our assurance. That is our hope in a world filled with all kinds of uncertainty and fear. Our hope is in the Son of God, Jesus. Amen? Amen? Amen. Well, and because that's true, what we're going to do now is we're going to step right into communion. So um, if I could get... A few guys to come up and help me serve communion, that would be really awesome. And, and 
going back to what Paul said, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the blood and the body of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This table does not belong to Wind River Community Church. This table does not belong to the denomination that we're a part of. This table doesn't belong to anybody except Jesus. And he has a simple invitation for us to come around this table. If you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that I am the Son of God, you are saved, you will dine with him at this table. So that's it. If, if you've done that, then we want you to join in in celebrating what Jesus has done for us. He has called us out of the grave, right? <laughs> we came running out of there because he got out of it first. He paved the way for us, and now he wants to lo- us to live in freedom. He wants us to live like no one else. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to hand out the bread and the cup together. I want you just to hang on to them until everybody's been served, and then when everybody's been served, then we'll partake together. Uh, I, want, I really want to challenge you to just take a moment. Reflect upon your heart. Is, is there something God's calling you to repent? Just repent right now. Remember, we've talked a lot about repentance. Repentance is one of the greatest gifts that God has given to the church. So use it. It's right there. I mean, as soon as, if you confess your sin, he will cleanse you right now. Why not be in prime condition to celebrate what Jesus has done for us, right? All right. Our Father, thank you. Thank you for your son. We thank you for dying on the cross for us, Jesus. We thank you that you took it for us. You took it to the cross. You allowed sinful men to nail you to the cross. You spilt your blood so that there would be a once and for all covering of our sin. It is removed under your blood. It is no more. It is gone forever. And we thank you that we can have that freedom. We can have that peace. We can have that joy. We have that assurance from you. And so as we take this cup and we take this bread today, help us just to celebrate the fact that you've set us free. You have called us out of the grave. We pray these things in your great name, Jesus. Amen.